0: the word female is not related to the word male at all. So there's wow. just, there's so much wonder to be unlocked here.
1: Have you ever wondered why we say words like disgruntled but not gruntled? Or why some words have so many silent letters like night? Well, we have Middle English to thank for many of these peculiarities. The last episode, we explored Old English, and now we're looking at its evolution into Middle English. As a language which is much more familiar to us today, It's a fascinating gateway into the storied history and etymology of many of our modern words. Welcome to The Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. In this podcast, we explore everything related to what makes us uniquely human, language. This first season is all about the evolution of English. Now, I came across Jess Sephora on TikTok, where I saw her wonderfully engaging videos about etymology and words related to Middle English. And that's when I knew that she'd be a perfect guest to talk about this topic. Jess's main job is at Adweek, but on the side she runs a blog called Useless Etymology. She's also the author of Once Upon a Word, a word origin dictionary for kids and look out for a new book called Words from Hell, unearthing the darkest secrets of English etymology, published by Chambers. So Jess, how easy is it to actually pinpoint Middle English? Is there a date when Old English stopped and Middle English began?
0: That's a great question. Um, So as you mentioned, uh, the shift from Old English to Middle English is typically understood to be marked by the, the Norman invasion and the occupation of England by William the Conqueror in 1066. Now, Old English also went through some additional changes thanks to the Vikings, who were also involved in the Norman invasion. Their communication with Anglo-Saxons blended Old Norse words into the language and helped English shift to relying more on helping words and prepositions rather than inflections. But the Normans infused the culture with an absolute avalanche of Norman French words, most of which were Latin derived. Because it was used by the ruling class, Norman French became the language of literature, high society, education, and law, which is why Latin-derived words are sometimes perceived to be fancier than Germanic-derived words.
1: Ah, Okay, and you mentioned literature. I mean, are there examples in the corpus of Middle English literature that really exemplify its use?
0: Probably the most iconic and ubiquitous one that you've probably read in school is The Canterbury Tales and the rest of Chaucer's work. Chaucer was a little bit later, though, 1300s to early 1400s, and of course, Middle English is first marked starting in the 11th or 12th centuries. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is another later work from the 14th century, and I I love that one. An older work is the Ormulum, which dates from the 12th century and was written by a monk. It's a collection of biblical analysis and commentary. It's about 19,000 lines long, and it's been incredibly valuable in understanding how Middle English developed and works. There are others, there's Havelock the Dane, which was a 13th century Middle English romance that also has some earlier versions in Anglo-Norman. And then there are the works of John Wycliffe, whose biggest claim to fame are his attempts to translate the Bible into English for the first time to make it more accessible to common people, which, as you can imagine, was incredibly influential. Before that, there were sermons and passages and biblical plays in English, but Latin was really the language of religion.
1: with the written language, obviously, you've you've given some really great examples there. And we always hear about the different types of words that we use and how, you know, with the Latin roots, the French influence, I mean, are there there any particular examples that you have that are favorites for you that have fallen out of use, maybe?
0: Oh, there are so many. Um, One of the great joys of studying Middle English is learning, you know, how the words that we use today are rooted in in the past and in different languages, particular words that I enjoy tend to be Germanic-derived ones that have fallen out of use. Like The most joyful Middle English word I can possibly think of is balter or balteren in its original form, which means to dance gracelessly without particular art or skill, but while enjoying it. And it's in several poems and prose works from the 1380s to the 1420s. Also, you know, on my TikTok channel, I talk, and in, in my books, I talk about unexpectedly naughty words. And this happens a lot in Middle English. One of my favorites is the word feisty, which obviously we use today. Nowadays, that word means lively, determined or courageous or touchy and aggressive. And it usually refers to small, determined animals and people. But if you dig into that word, it opens up this whole range of wonder and hilarity. Before that, the word feist was an early 19th century name for a small dog, which of course makes sense if you've ever met a small dog. But feist, as a word for a small dog, is a shortened version of the Middle English word feasting cure, or the the phrase feasting cura, which is feisting cur. So a cur is a dog, right? And feisting meant farting or breaking wind. And (laughs) according to the Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which was published in the 1800s, but looks back on Middle English, the meanings of the word feist and dog overlapped because high class ladies would blame their breaking wind on their little pet lap dogs, And then that one also connects to words like fizzle, which was originally a word for uh, breaking wind as well.
1: Wow. I didn't realize we'd have so much gas out of that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I also, um, I have a particular interest in unpaired words, which are words that are not commonly used without prefixes and suffixes. And in some Mm -hmm. case, the root word in unpaired words was used in Middle English. For instance, the word disgruntled. We don't usually use the word gruntle. But this word did exist in Middle English. It meant that you complain a lot. And it's basically the word grunt with a frequentive ending. So it's comparing someone who complains a lot to a grunting pig. So uh, it's similar in meaning to the word grumble. And then another one is the word ruthless. We don't usually use the word roof by itself, but it's a variation, a noun form of the word rue, which means to bitterly regret something in the phrase, you'll rue the day, you know. (laughs) So um, a ruthless person doesn't regret their actions, no matter how awful they are. And Rue and Ruth share a root. They may have entered English separately. Rue is an older word and appears in Old English. Ruth is from Old Norse and appears in the 1200s. But they blended together, modeled after the pairing of the adjective true and the noun truth. So there's there's so much wonder to be unlocked here.
1: Are there any myths surrounding Middle English that you've heard and that you think we need to dispel?
0: That's a, a good question. I have several examples of this. One that I see often in like contemporary businesses that are trying to look old timey are those that like call themselves Ye Old Bakery or Ye Old Tavern, and that's pardon my French, essentially anachronistic bullshit. Um, <laughs> ye old or ye oldie wasn't actually a thing anyone said or wrote down in old or Middle English. Its first recorded use was in like the 1700s when people were deliberately trying to be old timey, just like today. The word ye did exist in Old English. It's a second person plural pronoun, but it was spelled G-E. But what is often mistaken for ye in phrases like ye old bookshop was actually the word the spelled with the letter thorn, which looks very similar to the Y in medieval English black letter. So if you read the old apothecary in Gothic script with the thorn spelling, you might easily mistake it for the word ye, which is exactly what happened when people started naming these things. Also, uh, another really interesting, there are a few examples of folk etymology, which basically is when the supposed root or origin of a word impacts its spelling, pronunciation, or usage. So in Middle English, island, or eland, was spelled Y-L-A-N-D. The root of the first part of the word means water, so island literally means land on water. It does not share a root with the word isle, I-S-L-E which is from Old French and ultimately from the Latin insula. But it was assumed based on the meaning and pronunciation that Eland and isle were related, and they essentially became a portmanteau in the form of the word island, which is why we have an S in there. (laughs) Another one that's really interesting to, at least it, it was popular among my TikTok followers, is that folk etymology's influence on the word female. The word female is not related to the word male at all. The word female originally comes from the Latin word femina, and then the diminutive of femina is femella, which means young girl or female, and the Latin word was adopted into Old French as femelle, and then adopted directly into Middle English with the same spelling, f-m-e-l-l-e. But then in the late 14th century, the spelling shifted because people thought that it was a variation of the word male. But the word male comes from the Latin word masculus, which is totally unrelated to the word femina.
1: And with Middle English, I mean, I think we can't really talk about Middle English without talking about the Great Vowel Shift. I mean, it's something that many of us hear about at school, tends to be in passing. I think people get the idea of something happened to the way we pronounce things, and possibly that's really all that people retain. But what actually did happen during the Great Vowel Shift?
0: Sure, yeah. So the, the Great Vowel Shift happened between 1400 and 1700. Big gradual process. This wasn't an, an overnight thing. Suddenly, we would pronounce our our vowels differently. But during that time, all Middle English long vowels changed as we shifted into mer- early Modern English. In Middle English, the long vowel sounds of a, e, i, o, u were pronounced. A was pronounced ah as in pond or wand. E was pronounced eh or a eh, as in get or hay. I was pronounced e as in see. O was pronounced o oh, as in boat and u was pronounced u as in boot so the word tail was pronounced tala the word root was pronounced rota and it also impacted some consonants um like when you're reading chaucer you roll your r's a bit like i said just a second ago in rota that's actually in the, the prologue of the canterbury tales and you pronounce all of the letters in consonant clusters like k n and w r as well as silent ghs so the word knight was knicht The reasons for the vowel shift are a bit debated. Some factors include the introduction of a bunch of French words, which we've already talked about, but there were also shifts in population concentrations due to the Black Death that brought a lot of people from northern to southern England. Other events, that shift to southern England resulted in a lot of people moving to London, and that resulted in a prestige dialect based on regional dialects, which is why like perhaps a London accent might sound fancier. So as usual, class and culture had as big of an influence as language itself. And then the end of Middle English is usually marked in the mid 1400s. And of course, at the end of the 1400s, we got the printing press, which accelerated the shift into modern English and prompted more literacy and standardization.
1: Apart from the Great Vowel Shift that we've just talked about, are there any other events that really define the Middle English period?
0: Well, largely speaking, I would say it's the introduction of of Norman French and Viking influence. So the addition of Old Norse and Old French there are some interesting examples of how this played out. So the Normans infused the culture with this huge avalanche of Norman French words. Because it was used by the ruling class, Norman French became the language of literature, as we've discussed, in high society. And some French and Latin-derived words overtook Old English words. For instance, the word carpenter replaced a word that literally meant tree right. And then Old French supplemented and augmented English as well, which is why we have a lot of synonyms. One clear example of this phenomenon is the coexistence of Old English-derived animal names and Old French-derived words for cuisine. So you have a cow, an Old English and Germanic-derived word, but when you cook it, it becomes the Old French-derived beef, because that's the people who raise the cow versus the people for on whose table the dish appears. Same thing for chicken and poultry, pig and pork. Another example that really illustrates the class lines is the coexistence of the Old English-derived word house and the Old French-derived word mansion. Mansion sounds fancier, but etymologically speaking, it really just means house or dwelling. The implication of wealth is entirely cultural. So you see examples like that as the language is developing. And that, I think, appears, it sort of coalesced more as people shifted, as the Black Death shoved people into London, as different dialects appeared across England. And then later in the in the mid-1400s, when people became more literate, that also shifted You know, Middle English is is sort of a process more than a, a concrete thing.
1: Let's take a quick break and let you know that this episode of The Language Podcast is brought to you by Chambers, the number one brand for word lovers and publishers of Jess Forrest's new book, Words from Hell. A thoughtful analysis of why we deem words as being inappropriate, as well as revealing good words that have surprisingly naughty origins. Dirty-minded word nerds and lewd linguistics lovers will derive unadulterated pleasure in leering at the origins of swear words. Coming up, Jess has some great advice for anyone looking to learn Middle English. But first, I've got to say, I love hearing about the origins of words. Like, how female has got nothing to do with male at all. So, I'd like to know, have you ever come across any interesting word origins? Share your favourites in the comments for this episode on the Language Podcast YouTube channel. Right, back to the conversation. While Jess has explained how our pronunciation of certain words has evolved with time, it got me thinking, no one was actually producing podcasts back then. So, if we only have written versions of these words to hand, how faithfully can we reproduce the sounds of Middle English?
0: I would say semi-accurately. There are still disagreements about how every single word in every Middle English work was and should be pronounced, and part of the reason for that is it just wasn't standardized. Spelling was all over the place. It varied by region. Chaucer's work is more French-influenced. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is more Germanic-influenced. But if you ever had to memorize the Canterbury Tales prologue in Middle English, then the pronunciation you learned is considered to be true-ish to how Chaucer would have read it. Some sounds might feel less natural to a modern English speaker in certain contexts. For example, words with a silent G-H like daughter, laughter, and slaughter would have been pronounced more like dochter, lochter, and slochter. But that hard Germanic H sound doesn't appear in many modern English words, though of course you hear it in Scottish words like loch. One reason we're able to speculate about Middle English pronunciation is thanks to the Ormulum, which, as I mentioned earlier, is from the 12th century and contains 19,000 lines of Middle English written by a monk named Orm or Orman. And his unique phonemic orthography, basically the way he expressed pronunciation in writing, was really instrumental to tracing the development of Middle English and how it sounded. So that's kind of neat. I
1: mean, it's certainly interesting to hear about the texts and things that you can look at for Middle English and obviously Chaucer's well-known, and so going through something like the Canterbury Tales. But I mean, if you want to actually study Middle English, then would you just use these texts without learning grammar and vocabulary like we do for modern languages? Would that be a sensible approach to learning Middle English?
0: I'd say it depends on how familiar you are with Middle English. If you've never read it before, you might find some of it difficult to interpret. The vocabulary, spelling, and grammar are a little different. You might run into characters we don't use anymore, like Thorn and Yog. Middle English is, after all, a different language than modern English, though, of course, it's a lot easier to read than Old English. I think that listening can be particularly helpful. Like if you listen to a reading of the Canterbury Tales, it's interpretable, especially since you get used to the differences in pronunciation. But of course, many versions of the Canterbury Tales, for instance, are paired with the original text and a translation side by side, which is incredibly helpful as you're getting used to it.
1: You mentioned listening to recordings. So are there actually people who speak Middle English?
0: Yes, uh, you can find folks like this on TikTok and YouTube, which is uh, YouTube is a great place to get used to the phonetics of Middle English. I would not my, call myself a a speaker of Middle English, more of a student, though I'm not I'm not entirely useless at it. The internet and video media in particular has really opened up Middle English to a new generation of potential speakers, because prior to that, learning Middle English was pretty much an academic pursuit. So I think it's cool to see younger people and non-professor types exploring it and trying it out.
1: What's something that you know that always surprises you when people speak to you about this?
0: I'm always stunned and delighted by what words we did or didn't have at the time, like what words are old and what words are not and which words have, have developed over time. Like The one that really, really surprises people and, and often frustrates people when I talk about it is English didn't have a single specific word for the color blue until Middle English around the 1300s. Before that, things were often described in terms of how light or dark they were rather than specific colors. Uh, Some shades of what we call blue were called yellow because that wasn't a word for a specific color, but it was used to describe pale or light colored things. And this is not specific to English. Uh, Lots of ancient languages took a while to Acquire a word, a specific word for blue, and instead used broader terms that also included other colors. Uh, At least according to a 1969 book by Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, uh, they did a study suggesting that many languages develop color terminology in a recurring pattern, like light and dark, then reddish colors, then greens and blues, and then more nuance to fill out the color spectrum. And cultures today still approach color distinctions differently. Like um, in many languages, the words for blue and green. Are collectified, like what we call blue and green are collectified, which means that they use a single color word to cover both. I've heard, I, I do not speak Japanese, but I when I've mentioned this before, I had a Japanese speaking friend say, Oh, yeah, that must be why in Japan we call green lights blue lights, even though they're green. And then, you know, there are languages like Russian that also describe what. English would call different shades of blue as completely separate colors, light blue and, and dark blue, as if they are distinct colors or more distinct than we would consider them. I should qualify this by saying that like Anglo-Saxon England did have the word woad, which was a word for a blue dye. It, it could be gray, blue or black, but it wasn't usually used as a color name. So a little caveat there.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, mm-hmm. no, I didn't know about that. Is there a piece of information that you particularly like sharing about this?
0: I think I mentioned that one of my favorite things is what we've lost, what things have changed, things that we don't realize make a lot of sense in our language. I love when you you find an Old English word that suddenly clicks and you're like, oh, that's that's why we do this. So one really clear instance is in the word afraid. It's the past participle of a Middle English verb, but we don't use the original verb anymore the the verb is affray which means to frighten and variations on affray also appear in legal terms and in phrases like into the fray but it makes so much sense that afraid is is a past participle once you like once you discover that there are also so many rules that we use all the time that we don't realize are rules like the middle english ending ard or art which still exists today is used to intensify words and you don't even realize this when you're saying the words for example, a drunkard is literally someone who drinks too much. A braggart, it, same ending, is someone who brags too much. A dullard is someone who is very dull. And even a wizard is someone who is very wise. In Middle English, wizard didn't necessarily imply magician or sorcerer, but instead was a word for a philosopher or a sage. You'll notice that some of these words end up having like negative implications, not wizard, but drunkard, braggart, and dullard are, are all quite negative. So the ending can also be used to make words derogatory or pejorative. And that's the case in the word bastard, which um, is from the <laughs> old French feast de best," which means pack, settle, son. Settles and horse blankets doubled as beds while you were traveling. So a feast de best was one that a son that a man conceived while traveling away from home with a woman who wasn't his wife. And then words like coward, that one's a little weird. It Technically, comes from the Latin for tail, so someone who tucks their tail and would run away in a negative way. But its spelling was also influenced by the unrelated middle words, uh, Middle English words, cower and cowed. So either way, it's someone who is too cowardly. If you if you'll allow me one more, um, another interesting. really interesting phenomenon that crops up between Middle English and Modern English is rebracketing, which happens not just between these two, but there are several words that have shifted in spelling because they've been misheard or misinterpreted over time. Like the words adder and apron originally began with an N, natter and napron, or napron. But when you say a natter or a napron, it's easy to combine those so it sounds like an adder or an apron. And then the opposite happened to the word nickname, which is from the Old English ekenema, which means an additional name. So you could say that you have an ekenema, but that shifted over to having a nickname which then was influenced by the name Nick another example of folk etymology
1: I love that I think you know you when kids are learning languages well when kids are learning English and you've got this I, I've actually heard children use that type of thing like arm the word arm and mm-hmm. you say your arm give me let me look at your arm and then the child will say do you want to see my arm <laughs> and they'll add the r to the arm <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> so, that yeah, my daughter did that for a while. And, um, and it was super cute. We, used to, we, loved, we loved my Ram. We thought it was very sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, we
0: do it as adults too. Um, Mondegreens yeah. are when you mishear song lyrics. And the name Mondegreen is based on the person who coined that. And I can't remember her name, but she she heard a, an older poem or song where the, the line was, she laid him on the green. And she misheard it as Lady Mondegreen. so that's the word for misheard musical lyrics
1: that's good to have a word to go with that i definitely hear lots of very interesting things when i hear modern songs particularly
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. if there's one key
1: thing that you would want everyone to know about what we've talked about today what would that be
0: not everyone is as thrilled by etymology and language as we are but the more you study etymology uh, linguistics the more you develop study the development of language the more you realize that language is always changing and the more you unlock these wonderful things and therefore the better you are able to use your own language you know you realize that all language has rules literally all language including casual dialects uh, those rules evolve so I think one mistake as a kid, you know, when I was in high school being a little English nerd, I was super prescriptive. Like English has these rules and we have to follow them. But since languages evolve so much, I think it's important to to realize that colloquialisms, new language patterns, and being super prescriptive about those isn't productive because our rules shift over time. And I often talk to authors and, and writers and I tend to I tend to advise them to remember that Words have so much power behind them, given the the amount of history behind them, their definitions and colloquial meanings, the way they evolve, and where they come from. So my biggest tip for anyone who, who appreciates words, who wields words, who uses them to craft anything of creativity, is to be voracious about collecting them for your lexical toolkit. I remember there was one moment I had when I was studying French in high school, and I um, Aya had this absolute tornado of a teacher. She had a a very big personality. And one time she had given us a reading. Uh, It involved a word that was not on our vocabulary list. So most of us just like skimmed over it. And then the next day she asked us what it meant. And we were like, I don't know. It wasn't on the vocabulary list. And she blew up. She was like, why would you not look it up? You've got a French dictionary. You've got the internet. Why why would you choose to remain ignorant about this? And that's, that's kind of my philosophy for learning things about words is like if, we, if you come upon a word you've never re- met before, look it up, look into its history. It helps you. Learning about etymology helps you be more precise and thoughtful with your word choices and to wield words for good and to be more creative and to cultivate knowledge.
1: So when you come across words, and you mentioned using the tools at our disposition, sort of the internet and things, but how do you actually go about digging deep and doing the research into into words?
0: I find that the the way to really like get at the heart of the way language develops is to to start with the basics and then dig deeper. A lot of times, you know, if somebody is talking about etymology, they'll they'll quote an online article or something, but really like. One of the best ways I think that you can truly understand it is to start with something like the Oxford uh, English Dictionary of Etymology, and then, you know, start with that. There are good resources in it. It's a little bit dry. So digging farther into source materials is really where you get the great magic out of words. Um, So, you know, if the OED has has an entry on, on a particular word, you can often figure out what year, or an approximate century in which a word was used. And one of the magic things about having about the internet age is that we have all of these materials from the Middle English period that we can draw upon. So if you find that a word was first used in around the year 1450 then or 1350, then you can look up the place that it was found. You know, uh, there especially with Middle English it's really useful because in Middle English there are only a limited number of works that we derive most of our knowledge of the language from. You know, there's linguists have proper speculation around um, the development of the language, but a lot of this is based on literature and the works that were developed during that time. So if you can actually look up the first instance of the word in, uh, the first recorded instance of the word in Chaucer, that's, that's really magical. You get to l- do literal word archaeology. And obviously, you know, if, if Chaucer is the first recorded use of a word that doesn't mean it's the first ever use of the word it's probably one that a lot of people said but being able to find it in in writing and in print it's our best possible means of confirming the usage of a word in a more in a broader sense
1: when you talk about words being found in text and that being sort of the indication that it was used one of the things i always hear about shakespeare is he made up words
0: i have i have a lot to say about this there are <laughs> So whenever somebody says Shakespeare made up a word, they'll say he made up words that started, you know, anywhere from like 300 to 700 words. In truth, what he did was he modified words. He created, he verbed nouns, so to speak. He adjectived nouns. He changed parts of speech. And so like when, um, like his first, the first appearance of words like metamorphosis was in Shakespeare, I believe, but there are earlier recorded instances of metamorphose, which is really interesting. And then uh, a lot of words that came into an interesting related phenomenon is uh, back formations. So a lot of Latin words, nouns that came into English with the ending T-I-O-N came in before the corresponding verb. So the word, for example, evaluation, is older than the word evaluate in English because the Latin word, the Latin noun, entered first. Um, Same with uh, elevation is older than elevate, which is interesting. Apparently, in general, English has about three times as many nouns as it does verbs, because as we are developing languages, we're learning to speak, even and like when we're babies, we need to name things before we need specific verbs and actions to go with them. So I think that's that's really interesting. And Shakespeare did a lot of that, like a lot of his words are that he invented are back formations that were made to either sound poetic or fit the verse. And and this is not to diminish Shakespeare in the slightest, like the the craft with which he chose and developed these words was extraordinary and and it's also you know entirely possible that someone had spoken that word as a verb even though it appears in most cases before that as an adjective
1: thank you so so much jess you know I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing all of this thank,
0: thank you, you so much it. for having me this has been a delight you know i i love talking about words it's my favorite <laughs> thing to talk about and uh, this has been so much fun
1: and if talking about words is your favorite thing to do as well Stay tuned for the next episode of The Language Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Simcott. I'd love to know if you have come across any interesting etymological wonders. Has the origin of a word ever surprised you? Let me know by sharing your thoughts in the comments. If you enjoyed listening to Jess, check out her TikTok, buy her new book, Words from Hell, unearthing the darkest secrets of English etymology, and visit her blog, Useless Etymology. Coming up next week we'll be exploring the sister language of English, Scots, with Len Penny and Dr. Michael Dempster. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.